Hello and welcome back to Did You See? This podcast for each week, two friends, myself, Dan, one of those friends, and himself, Max, <laughs> get together and ask and answer each other the question that friends have been asking and answering since the dawn of stuff to talk about. Hey, did you see? Uh, so, Max, leading this right off, um, I, I, this is not going to be a soapboxy weird one. It's just, I saw this and I couldn't help. So, did you see that there is a Short Circuit remake in the works? I did. Wh- what? <laughs> people for some reason and i'm not like it's a it's a fine movie and it's a nostalgia movie for me i know j-rod really likes it um but there are some people who hold that movie in extraordinarily high regard i don't understand it's i mean it's a fine movie and i enjoy watching it it's definitely got some uh some problematic things in it i mean fisher uh, stevens and Brownface comes to mind yeah that's a big one and I can see, I mean, but the the core story I could see being, or it's just tough with the how much technology has evolved so quickly that this doesn't just feel like it's going to be ex machina for kids. It's really an interesting <laughs> one. That's a really, really weird way to, to say that, but I don't think you're wrong. It's kind of like ex machina for kids. The, the weirder thing for me is like, apparently it's being uh, helmed or being, uh, uh, developed by Spyglass Media, known for such films as Keeping the Faith and Shanghai Nights. Wow. Yeah, uh, I mean, and a bunch of others. Like Balt, they were the uh, producers in Balls of Fury and The Love Guru. Also, wow. Yeah. They, they, granted, they did also co-produce JJ's first Star Trek. Right, know? right. And and Dinner for Schmucks, which looked terrible, but apparently wasn't. Right. Um, and the Footloose reboot. Mm-hmm. And you gotta and, produce movies, right? If you produce movies. Yeah, so, like, sure, but I, I also don't necessarily understand what it means by the writers Eduardo Cisneros and Jason Schumann are bringing a Latin American, Hispanic American element to the story. What are, I'm assuming that means all the characters are going to be Latinx or similar, but right. I don't, I don't, I mean, cool, because we've talked about on this podcast a lot, kind of tired of seeing white people stories, um, <laughs> just because it's what everybody makes. But at the same right. time, like, I don't want this to turn into, like, the American death at a funeral where they just jammed a bunch of, uh, like, there's almost no way for me to continue down this path without getting uh, to sound like I'm being racist. So I'm going to stop. But. I'm nervous about tokenism. I'll put it that way. Yeah, it it creates a lot of, like, we're taking... When you take this thing and just jam it into a box because it's simply that thing, it becomes... It it just feels hollow. It doesn't feel authentic. So I hope that the creators have a, like... If that's through their lens and it's through a lens that they can relate to, it's like, hey, it'd be really interesting if we took this story and told it this way because it changes things so dramatically awesome and i hope that's the case yeah i'm look i enjoyed short circuit as a child the one ish time i've watched it as an adult i will you know say that i didn't hate it so sure just give me you know i got a kid who's you know growing daily and maybe this will be his short circuit you know because whatever but i just don't there's just got to be, there have to be new ideas out there. It right? feels like there's not. 
like that's the thing like i saw this and i was just like i mean cool because the two people helming it are lesser known and i'm gonna go out on a limb here based on the surname actually given name and Cis- uh, uh, surname cisneros i'm assuming is a, a latinx person but i just don't i just don't <laughs> it's no. simply put I, I agree with you, and that's and it's it's funny because I've been trying to kind of figure out a way to loop this into the podcast, just this this discussion in general. I think you kind of hit on a good way to bring it up. It's really tough, and you think this podcast is easy because it's just like, oh, these two dopes just find stories on the internet and talk about shit they like, which is, yeah. yes, you are right. I mean, that's the, that's the elevator pitch, but it's more than that. Yeah, it's really tough, especially right now, to not talk about stories that are possibly going to happen possibly years from now Mm -hmm. because whenever a new thing comes out it's like all right cool that might happen in three years yeah or to talk about something that's just a rehash reboot retelling all of that one of the stories that i had as a possible on here was the disney and i I apologize if you're if this is uh stepping on your b story it's not disney the disney reboot of darkwing duck I it's saw like, that and cool. I wanted to talk about it, but I was just like, honestly, I figured you might bring it, so I didn't. Yeah, it's and it's it's awesome, and I love Darkwing Duck, and the fact it's going to tie together with Ducktales and all that is the thing we wanted so badly since Launchpad was in both. Yeah, and but, that's that's what I've wanted since they announced the the you know reboot for Ducktales. Yeah, it's it's just at a point you get kind of burnt out on like here's a reboot, here's a rehash, here's a repeat. Here's a re this, here's a re that. Comic books are kind of effed right now because of how crazy distributions become. So there's some stuff, and I try to tie in the comic book stuff as much as possible. And frequent listeners to the podcast will know that you and I play video games, but not in a way that's like gigantic and like yeah. to where it'd have to be a really special piece of video game to bring to the podcast. So it's become tough in these pandemic times to really find compelling story and i've had to dig more now in the past few weeks really since we since we came back strong than i ever have before to find stories that are more compelling and there's some stuff that it's like oh this is gonna be cool mm-hmm. and you have to bring it to the podcast but i've been really trying to dig and find other things that are either available now available on the internet coming up low-key kind of stuff that people can enjoy safely and enjoy not hopefully a million years from now and we have to keep following up on our follow-ups about the thing that was possibly going to happen and you know who knows what's where it's at now in development hell because of all this yeah it's it is it is really weird and it's been something that's been kind of difficult um you know i've if i had the time damn having a 12 week old child curses if i'd had the time there is a video game that i really want to talk about on the podcast but i want to be able to play it first because mm-hmm. i've watched people play it i've heard people talk about it on podcasts but i haven't actually and i own it but i haven't actually sat down and played it myself and i really really want to but i i, I you know i haven't had the time and i don't want to talk about it on the show until i have the time so right it's kind of a whole thing but it is difficult but i'm assuming you were still able to find some stories uh so maybe hit us with your first one Yes, Dan, this will give you a chance to talk a bunch during my story. Did you <laughs> see that at time of filming or recording, filming, recording, whatever, you don't know. Maybe we view, maybe we video each other. You don't Yeah, know. we're on a we Discord screen us. share, you know. I, I record this podcast on a bearskin rug. Uh, Reynolds style. You, yeah, absolutely. 
did you see that tomorrow, which is going to be the 17th of November 2020, that the documentary The Orange Years is going to release? I don't even know what that is. That is a documentary about 90s Nickelodeon specifically. Oh, shit. Uh, I'm in. Yes. So there's a clip that will interest you you could watch tonight, and the clip surrounds one of your favorite oddities, The Adventures of Pete and Pete. That's uh, possibly my favorite show from childhood. I think I'm willing to say that now at this point. And uh, you have uh, Danny Tamborelli in there. The um, one of the series writer, Will McRobb, is on there. And specifically in the clip, they talk about the impetus and the point and the purpose of Artie, the strongest man in the world. <sighs> so it's pretty My favorite exciting. character from anything in childhood. Yeah, it's a pretty awesome thing, and I loved, uh, if you watch the clip, I got the clip, or the, the article off of Slash Film, and in the clip they talk about how you were supposed to kind of be left to make your own decisions if Artie was real or just something that Pete made up, or if he actually interacted in the real world and exactly like what his purpose as a protector of Pete was, and it helped to kind of develop the character of Pete in a sense. It was pretty, like, the amount of thought that went into such a bizarre character was actually kind of impressive to me. Hmm. So, pretty cool. I mean, everybody, I mean, if you watched Pete and Pete, you have to have kind of a special place in your heart for Artie, the strongest man in the world. Yeah. That's, it's just, I'm very excited and I need to watch this entire documentary. Yeah, so it comes out and it's available on the 17th which is pretty cool. I have to look up specifically in the article. I don't know if it mentions where in the world you can watch it, but I'm sure if you just Google the orange years, you'll find it easy enough. <laughs> it yeah, can't be that I, hard. I don't seem to think iTunes. Okay. So I was, I was looking at an article on Nerdist about it and I was just like, it doesn't seem to say it just says video on demand. Yeah. And that article yep. is from today. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty wild that it's just like, here it comes, and I, li I like it when there's stuff a, like this kind of yeah, comes out. There's a Rolling Stone article from September, and that's the only thing I can find from, like, earlier than today and yesterday. Right, yeah, it's, I, I hope this is really cool. I mean, Dan and I are the right age that this era of Nickelodeon is super-duper nostalgic, but if you're a little younger than we are and you're into SpongeBob SquarePants and, like, Fairly Odd Parents and things of that nature... You probably might you will probably want to go back and revisit it just because this is kind of for us and it's widely regarded as the golden age of Nickelodeon. This kind of took it from a nothing into from a literal Nickelodeon into <laughs> what is I think the their um their little uh, elevator pitch, their marketing kind of blurb that they put out on Twitter is eight billion dollar juggernaut. Yeah, that I is Nickelodeon. It. So. Yeah. This was kind of the pivotal moments, and if you're a little younger and you, like, maybe you've heard some people mention these shows or something, you're like, what's this all about? I think this would be a good way to kind of give you an idea of just, like, yeah, they they say we're insane. Look at the crazy television these, these people were watching. Especially if you watched, like, the mid to late 2000s, early 2010s, like, Dan Schneider-led uh, Nickelodeon shows, the, the Zoe 101s at all of yeah. the world. Um, it's not, those are two different networks and it's a whole entire thing that 
this is still the same Nickelodeon that produced all of that stuff. Right, and you can really see the the tendrils of influence that kind of went into those. Because if Clarissa explains it all hadn't existed, we wouldn't have gotten something like an iCarly or a Zoe One Hundred One. Yeah, I I agree completely. And I will also say, and because I, I had to remember this, um, uh, Dan Schneider, producer of a lot of the late uh, late Nickelodeon stuff, the Zoe's iCarlys, uh, was also a producer on all that Keenan and Kel and the Amanda Show. Um, right. In in addition to acting on Head of the Class, which I did not know until literally just now uh okay me either. Which, yeah but um yeah also created drake and josh like the dude's literally been yeah i will go from the quote from the new york times that he was the norman lear of children's television yeah um, pretty much yeah <laughs> uh based on you know like a 30 year career in children's television a 26 year career in children's television because he, his last created show was the adventures of kid danger which came out in 2018 and so 24 years from all that to the adventures of kid danger he was all over nickelodeon almost entirely it's funny yeah how he managed to retain the pulse of that in almost like a john hughes-esque fashion for so long very much like a like a norman lear yeah somebody who just kept making television that that met the met the zeitgeist for like 20 years yeah pretty interesting in this documentary so if you want to go back and kind of see some interesting or crazy weird shit and you've never heard of hey dude or salute your shorts i can't recommend this (laughs) one enough uh Notably, this doc's been in the works for a while because their Twitter account joined in 2016 and their last tweet was June 26, 2018. Wow. Yeah, So that which and the tweet was, would you rather be a contestant on Double Dare or Guts? Slam Double Dare. Yeah? <laughs> Hell yeah. Incorrect, but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you. I mean, it'd be cool to meet Mike O'Malley. You're taking home a piece of the aggro crag, motherfucker. It is not <laughs> even close. What are you going to take some of Mark Summers, what, his shoes or his curly hair? Like, there's no contest here. Well, there's our title, A Piece of the Aggro Craig. <laughs> Not going to add the motherfucker part to the episode title, but it's in there. Those of you who are listening, please understand the name of this episode should be A Piece of the Aggro Craig Motherfucker. <laughs> We're keeping it PG. Uh, but no, this... Uh... It should be really interesting because, uh, yeah, I'm really excited just at the people who are involved. Oh, it was crowdfunded. Yeah. It was an Indiegogo. They were looking for 12125 They made 16415 four years ago. Takes so much. I mean, could you just imagine, like, traveling around and having to talk oh, to all Christ, these people? Oh, Christ, it'd be so much fun. Yeah, it'd be a hoot. It'd be a hoot, and it would take a million years to parse through and cut, and I'm interested to see it, just because stuff like that is really interesting to see in each, like, I imagine it's project-by-project-based, at least, through, Mm -hmm. like, probably, like, temporally would be my guess, but I'd love to see kind of how they managed to develop stories in each of the shows and everything. It's it's got a lot to see. I I completely agree with you, and I will. uh, Once um, the Desert Bus run is over and I can bring myself to watch literally anything else i will be watching this nice so friday or saturday probably i will absolutely be watching this that's cool cool um i'm gonna move us right along because we've gone a little little long in the tooth on the first two stories there but they had a lot of meat uh to one of the weirder with a great punchline stories i've reported on this podcast in a while uh max did you see that the self-proclaimed pope of trash john waters has bequeathed most of his art collection to the baltimore museum of art 
I did. Did did you see what I consider the punchline of the whole thing? No. They're renaming the bathrooms in the east lobby of the museum the John Waters bathrooms. Oh, that's fantastic. And the domed room in their European art gallery will be renamed the John Waters Rotunda. But (laughs) there's no more appropriate thing, in my opinion, in a museum for John Waters to have named after him than two bathrooms. Oh, no, I totally agree. So notable about this collection, and this is really interesting. uh, So first off, 375 pieces, which is apparently not his entire art collection, which is also interesting, but contains work from Andy Warhol... Roy Lichtenstein, and Cy Twombly. I believe As well as nearly 90 pieces of his own creation. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Apparently he had a retrospective at BMA in 2018, and uh, that was part of what got this going. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, But just like, so Cy Twombly is a painter that I actually grew to really like after the last time I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They have um, an exhibition on his work there. And I think it's really neat that Waters is donating some of his pieces. And just the fact that we're going to get some Warhol originals and some Liechtenstein originals into a museum where they, in my opinion, belong is amazing. That's very important pop art, especially of that era. Yeah. Um, And I, I just I love the quote from the director of the museum, uh, someone who obviously understands art. John is an international icon, and more importantly, a local treasure. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Like, more importantly, I love that. Yeah. uh (laughs) That's, that was the part I love about it, is like, you know, Baltimore always been very important, so. Yeah, a huge influence on him, a huge, and he was, you know, conversely, a huge influence on Baltimore. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, He's so great. Oh, even better. His donation is a restricted gift, which means none of the pieces can ever be sold and the collection cannot be broken up. Beautiful. Yeah. So they will stay in. Uh, they will stay in and they will go there and be there. And I got to tell you, I, I think I'm down for another trip to Baltimore once this happens. Yeah, that's a really cool thing. I mean, I. I wish we had gotten to see him when he was at the truck at a point. Yeah, yeah, John Waters Christmas. Maybe we'll get one more out of him. I hope so, once all this nonsense is um, done. He's going to outlive COVID, it's fine. Yeah. So, the the final closing piece here, and I, I don't know, we don't often talk about art in this podcast, but I know both of us are interested in it. Uh, so, sorry out there while we geek out if you're not into art. Um, this, I think, is really cool. Uh, because he had a personal relationship with a lot of the artists that he was a fan of, and was meticulous in assembling files on the artwork. All of that correspondence and the files and everything are part of the bequest. And the agreement stipulates that an inaugural exhibition of the collection has to be held before the end of 2025, and that at least five artworks, including one created by him, have to be on prominent display in the museum at all times. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Um... (laughs) Apparently, when when they were discussing uh, with him uh, what you know what would meet that requirement, the interview um, that I'm looking at, uh, he said that the restroom might be a logical choice, at least for his piece, uh, or maybe some other pieces, including um, a piece called "I Peed in My Pants," uh, a piece by a sculptor called Mike Kelly that looks exactly like a giant turd, and uh, George Stoll, who I don't know, chiffon toilet paper, ending with a quote. I have a lot of art that would work in a bathroom. 
<laughs> He's the best. I just, I mean, at some point in the next five years, I got to keep my, try to keep my finger on the pulse of this. At some point in the next five years, uh, I think this is definitely worth a trip to Baltimore for because what a just, what an experience a museum collection curated by him would be. Oh yeah, no doubt. So, yeah, one of the uh, highlights of every end of every year is seeing his list of uh, his list of films. Because boy, oh boy, he makes Quentin Tarantino look like a novice at picking films. I mean, he, he likes what he likes in all forms of art. Yes, hundred percent. So, Dan, I'll close this out with something that I enjoy quite a bit. Um, did you see that Tom Holland has announced that he is creating a sequel? to Fright Night, but as a novel. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was a really clever idea. It's going to be called Fright Night 2 Resurrection. Huh. And it's going to include the characters from the first movie, and it's ignoring, obviously, Fright Night 2 because he had no involvement in Fright Night 2. Though I enjoy Fright Night 2, I will admit, it is not spectacular. Huh. Um, But it's a lot of fun. If you want vampires on roller skates, look no further than Fright Night 2. But this will take as kind of take it as a direct sequel back from when this movie came out in 85. And I don't know where it's going to pick up temporally, but it is going to include it by his own admission. It's going to include Charlie, Evil Ed, everybody. And apparently somewhere related in the plot is to resurrect Jerry Dandridge and Billy Cole, which I think is pretty cool. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, so it should be pretty neat. There's no anticipated release date as of yet, like everything going on right now, but it's a book, so it's a little easier to get done yeah. in these times. But he's currently writing it and currently at 31,000 words oh in the novel. Yeah, so... Getting big. Yeah, pretty intriguing um, follow-up and a way to do it that's not just a movie that they're like trying to cast or like trying to make work, even though a lot of the, the principal cast is still alive outside of Roddy McDowell. It still would be a weird thing to do that far flung in the future. Unless you had a really clever idea, I kind of would be like, eh, it feels a little too like every other project you mentioned. We're trying to make a sequel or a remake out of it. Yeah. But the fact that he's just like, I just kind of wanted to write this, so I'm just making a novel because the idea struck me. Genuinely feels like a piece of artistic inspiration that intrigues me. Yeah. Um. I mean, look, it... Sure, right? Like, I, I don't really know. Like, I, I, I'm not nearly the fan of Fright Night at the Or. It's, it's, it's fun horror film. You know, like, it's it's a good watch. But, it, sure. <laughs> I yeah. guess, like, I can't necessarily, uh, you know, from, from the guy who wrote Psycho 2, you know? Yeah, Psycho 2's <laughs> so good. And also Child's Play, and also Thinner. Yes, then don't count that against him. I, I won't. Because, hey, it's it's an adaptation. It is. I mean, and also The Langoliers, which is also an equally terrible adaptation. Yeah, I've not actually seen The Langoliers, so... Take a hard pass on that one, buddy. Yeah, that bad? Oh, it's bad. <laughs> it's just... Speaking of those adaptations, just a, a brief, brief aside. How does Stephen King churn out all the work he turns out? Uh, he forces himself to write like a m- machine man thing (laughs) has to be right like it's just like he's written so many stories in 45 years have you ever read his book on writing no it's good 
and it yeah. kind of gives you some insight as to like he it's it's he's a strange man he's a strange man but like, it, the book is great if you're an aspiring writer whether it's screen or film or anything it's an awesome book to read because like he all right just look at this 19 screenplays five works of nonfiction, and 61 novels in 46 years yep what Dude is a machine. I'm surprised he's not written a horror movie about how he writes. Yeah. Because that's it's horror. Like he just like even like doesn't if you listen do, to Joe Hill that thing where about, like doesn't he do that thing where like he write, a lot of times he'll write the end and then work his way to it. He'll come up with a part and he'll work around the part. Okay, that's what it is. The end sometimes. Sometimes it's a piece in the middle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he knows the whole book cold, and he just he'll like develop it, develop it, and then he just goes away and writes it. That's wild. Yeah, he's a machine. If you ever listen to listen to some interviews about uh, Joe Hill talking about the way his dad writes, it's like it's impressive that Joe ever became a writer himself. Well, it's got to be like really heavy shit to deal with. Yeah. Yep. Because yeah, I just think about like you know that's basically like two works a year every year since he started. Yeah, he's a monster just churning it out, and like you know. A lot of it is airport literature level, but it's still writing, right? Like, and a lot of it is actually like really well written, really heavy shit that he managed to to churn out. And like, you get that mix, or right? you just do so much that we see the best and the worst of King through his works, which is really you can almost define his like you can read his life through his books, which yeah. is really intriguing. To uh, to to wrap around the one other thing we talked about that didn't get touched on in this podcast. Two things I learned. Norman Lear, still alive. And 98 years old. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, Stephen King, great. Norman Lear, what the fuck? Unkillable. A- apparently, the... There was a reboot of One Day at a Time in 2017, which I had no idea, on you know, on television. And he was a producer on it. Good for him. He's like Roger Corman. Or Roger Corman's like him. They're both so old, they're the same, right? <laughs> they're just... Corman's like what? Corman's 93, I 94. think? 94. Like, it's close. Yeah. Fuck's sake. <laughs> it's like those two and Betty White will be here when everything else is gone. Yeah, no doubt. Jeez. Thought Connery was going to kick in there too, but... Yeah, oof. <laughs> but yeah, I just... And fucking still working. Roger Corman, at least. Yeah, yep. We should all be so lucky. I can only hope. Well, I think it's going to bring us to the end of this slightly longer than usual episode. If you like what you're hearing, folks, it's www.superliminalfilms.com. We can also be found on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram. Bye, everybody. And when I think about you, it makes me want to fart. It's I hope we never part. Now get it right or pay the price.